All right, so today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2 uh, in our journey through the New Testament. Obviously, we're just kind of getting started. And today I only want to do two things. How long could that possibly take, right? Uh, just want to remind you that last time I did the book of Romans, the first message was one verse. <laughs> uh, so, you know, anyway. Um, so the first thing I want to do is I want to look at the events that followed the birth of Christ and their connection to the authority of Scripture and how important they are. And secondly, I want to talk about a difficult reality that always accompanies a move of God, that a lot of times, especially as American Christians, we tend to look past. And that difficult reality is that every time that God moves, there's a cost of some kind. There's always a cost, uh, and we need to be able to to accept that, and not only accept it, but embrace it, uh, because it shows us that we're moving in the right direction. Okay, so the first thing, there are five prophetic references in chapter two of Matthew alone. Five prophetic references. Um, the star that would might mark his arrival, the uh, being born in Bethlehem, that would be, he'd be called out of Egypt, that there would be the death of children associated with the coming of the Messiah, uh, and that he would be called a Nazarene. And I want to take a look, quick look at those, uh, because those prophecies are here for two basic reasons. When you look at the New Testament, and you look, sometimes you look at those first couple chapters, I, I talk to more people that go, you know, Matthew's a great book when you get into chapter three. But getting past those first two chapters, just like, yeah, blah, 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 we know this stuff. No, that, that stuff is there for a reason. The, the, the reason why those prophecies are there, the first reason is that the Jewish people would know, uh, they would know them, and it would be impossible to ignore the scriptural support for the divinity of Christ. So when this gospel is being written, these prophecies are there. Matthew is putting these in here primarily to remind the Jewish people that they knew this was coming. There was nothing about this that should have been a surprise to someone paying attention. But the problem is, in a lot of our lives, we might read the Bible, but we don't necessarily pay attention. Uh, we read the Bible as though it's like, you know, from a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and that's not, that's not, not really how it works. The Bible is a living, breathing document, and it's with us even today. Now, the first two prophecies, now, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. It would, just, it would make the message today way too long. So I want to point out these individual pieces and just, just talk a little bit about them. So the first two prophecies are in the account of the wise men. Oh, lost my connection here. Here we go. And if you look at these in the beginning, it says, For we have seen the star in the east and have come to worship him, the one born king of the Jews. And so the smart people there say, say that, um, well, uh, I might be having a little issue here, uh, guys, so you may end up having to turn these slides for me. Keep shutting off. I don't, I don't know why. Um, says, uh, says to them, so in Bethlehem of Judah is where you will find the Christ, for thus it is written by the prophet. So we have two prophetic references. Now the star comes from a very obscure passage in Numbers twenty four seventeen that says, I see, I, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and, the bat, and batter uh, uh, the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of, of Tumult. The reference isn't really clear. You know, it's, and you look back and you think, wow, that's where they got that from? Yep, that's where they got that from. Because prophecy is never clear. If you're looking for a prophecy that is like, and Thursday at 4.30 p.m., at precisely, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, it's not a prophecy coming from God. But that's what, those are prophecies coming from men because we want to seem like we're smarter than we are. God always veils his prophecy. 
It's because the prophecy is not supposed to be our day-to-day guide. Now, that may sound weird coming from a pastor, but understand, prophecy is never supposed to be your day-to-day guide. Prophecy is there so that when it happens, we know there are markers. We know God is in control. Prophecy is always best understood in a rearview mirror. We've moved past it and we're like, oh my gosh, he told us that this would happen. We are on the path of God. But when you try, when people try to work out all the prophecy and the details, and they try to figure out exactly when this is going to happen and work it out, that's when you get a bunch of people running up their credit cards, you know, spending all their life savings, standing in the middle of a field waiting for Jesus to return. Did he actually just say, yeah, nerd? (laughs) That is fantastic. Because I agree completely. That's when you get people who are are trying to uh, put into the mouth of God exactly what he's supposed to do. We're trying to, we're trying to, we're we're not doing that for the benefit of God. We're doing that for the benefit of us. Trying to look smarter than, than we are. God says it's coming. And just stay aware that it will show up. But there are no prophecies that are down to the down to the letter. It's just not the way that it works. They're veiled for a reason. Now the Magi in this in this account were astronomers. They were from the east. They were not, and this is where people get messed up. They were not believers. They were not believers. They were basically the word magi is where we get our word magician. Okay, (laughs) so you can get an idea. These guys were the early scientists and the early astronomers. They were basically philosophers who believed this prophecy that a star would come out of David. They saw this as literal, which is funny because the Jewish leaders didn't. They saw this as, you know what? Their Messiah is going to be marked by a star. And as they were observing the night sky, they saw a new star and they were like, that's it. That's it. Let's follow it and see what happens. Think about this. Non-believers, un, they, they, didn't, they weren't Jews. They weren't converts. They didn't have anything. They, they, they weren't worried about whether or not they were going to be right with God. They were more interested in the science and the prophetic. And they looked at it and said, we're going to follow this star. We're going we're to see where this goes. They paid for that trip out of their own pocket, and it probably took a year or two. And there wasn't three, there were dozens. We only hear about three, but there were a lot more than three that did the journey. History shows us that to be true. So their curiosity about God and the prophetic led them on this journey. And this is the cool part, that led them on a journey that brought them literally to the doorstep of the Messiah. Now Jesus was somewhere between one and two years old when they finally found him. And we'll, I'll explain that in a minute. But this, the thing that makes that I find the most interesting is that people outside the church, people outside the church were used by God and put into his word because they noticed something that the believers missed. Isn't that interesting? 
that it took people outside to find something that the people inside missed. And the reason why I think the people, and this is my personal opinion, why the people inside the church missed it is because it didn't happen the way they thought it would happen. See, the people outside the church, ironically, the, 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 the magicians and the philosophers and the astronomers just read the, what the word said and went by that. Isn't this ironic that the people outside the church were like, well, the text says this. But the people inside the church were like, I know what the text says. But I prayed about it. And me and God have an understanding. I know exactly how Jesus is going to return. No, you don't. Nerd. <laughs> that word's going to show up a lot in this message. <laughs> it's just going to be great. Sometimes we can get so wrapped up in our religious practices that we forget that our faith is a living, breathing thing. And sometimes we also forget that God does not limit himself to our little corner of the world. God is perfectly willing to use an unbeliever to accomplish his purposes. Now, I've said that a number of times at different places. People say, that pastor, that's wrong. God would never use someone who doesn't know him. He only he uses the people that are with him. Really, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, 22, says that many will come to me on that day and say to me, have we not prophesied, done miracles, driven out demons in your name? And what does Jesus say? I don't even know who you are. I believe that's an unbeliever being used by God to accomplish his, his, accomplish his purposes. Sometimes we forget that. We need to be reminded that. So those are the first two prophecies. The third prophecy, uh, when you start in verse 13, says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this actually comes from Hosea 11.1. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you think about this, it cannot be easy for, for Joseph to have pulled up stakes and moved to the place that actually enslaved his people for hundreds of years. But that's exactly what he did. Because it was a safe place. Interesting, isn't it? That God would use a place formerly known as hostile and captive to God's people as a place of safety for his own son. We probably wouldn't have picked that one. We probably would have picked like a hotel in Florida or something and it would have been fine. But God says, no, 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 I want you to go to the people that hated you to be protected, and then I'll call you back. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. But God said, go, so you go. Here's a question for you. If God called you to go someplace where the people are those who you wouldn't care for too much, would you go? So here's, here's an interesting thing. For those people who were born in Carthage, and you're called to start a church in West Carthage. <laughs> it's, it's too far, Pastor. It's too far. It's just not the way that works. See, when God calls you to go, you just go. It doesn't make any difference who the people are because God loves all people. And his word is supposed to be taken to all people, regardless of who they are. Now, the fourth prophecy is a rough one. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah. And this actually comes from Jeremiah 31, 15. He says, thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, 
uh, for her children because they are no more. And we know that when Herod learned that the Christ was born and the wise men did not return to tell him exactly where, he didn't have a whole lot that he could do, so he did the only thing he could, only thing, he, he used the only tool that he had, which was violence. And so he decided that every male child in Bethlehem, two years and younger, would be killed. That's how we know that it was about two years from the time of Christ's birth. That was about the time frame that we're looking at. And a question gets asked quite often, like, how could God allow this to happen? How could God, how could a, how could God claim to be good and allow this to happen? And I'd remind you that it's not the first time that it happened. Same thing happened when Moses was born. But I, I want you to, to realize something. These things are not the will of God. Death is not the will of God. God did not say, you know what I'm going to do to herald my son, my, the savior of the world coming? I'm going to murder children. That's what I'm going to do. That is not the will of God. But at some point in time, we have to remember that the evil of man also has free will. The love of God has no limits on this earth, but neither does the evil of man. And when the evil of man is unleashed, it can do horrible things. And it was some way the evil of man to hang on to power because the what Herod was afraid of was what the wise men said, we've come to see the one born king, not the one who eventually would grow into the king, the one born king right now. The baby is the king. And Herod knew if the people got wind of this, He's done. So to hang on to his power, to not have to let go of what he can control, he chose unbelievable violence. And God knew it would happen, and it was going to happen one way or the other. So you use it to let people know. For those who love God, all things work together. For his good. So he shows us, I'm going to do something amazing and loving, and the world is going to do something amazingly evil. It's all going to happen at the same time. Watch for this to happen. Sometimes prophecy isn't great, but some, sometimes prophecy shows you the power and presence of God, and sometimes prophecy shows you the intense evil and hatred of man. Both exist. It's also another one of those reasons why I would never buy into Calvinism. You ask a Calvinist about this and they would say, well, somehow it pleased God that this happened. No, it didn't. There's nothing, you're never going to make me believe there's anything about this that pleased God. Now, the fifth prophecy, the last one, is a little different. So verse 23, it says, he shall be called a Nazarene. And the reason why this is a weird prophecy, now it says um, uh, 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 that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, if you look up in your Bible and you try to find this, you're not going to find it. It's not in your Bible anywhere. Now, wait a second. It's supposed to be a prophecy. How, how is this prophecy not in the Bible? How can we say that it's a prophecy if it's not in the Bible? Well, there's a few things that we need to remember. First, most theologians agree that this can be put together from various passages that say things like, he shall be despised and rejected. 
Those are all through scripture. Now, one of the interesting things is that anyone from Nazareth, Nazareth was despised and rejected. No one liked Nazareth the entire time Israel existed. For some reason, that town was the West Carthage of the world. It was just, it was like, hey! It's just, <laughs> I didn't say Krogan, I said West Carthage. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, no one, no, <laughs> no, yeah, exactly, yeah. You see, no one liked him. So some people put those two things together with, well, this was what it's referring to. Naturally despised and rejected. Now, there's another side of this that's a little bit less comfortable for people because we like to believe that our Bible has always existed the way it has existed. The heavens opened and the Bible lowered itself down on the wings of a dove and that's how we got our Bible. Nope. Nope. Your Bible is not a book. Your Bible is 66 books written over a time period of about 3,500 years. Somewhere around that. Bunch of different authors, all telling the same story. Now, here's the thing about this. It should remind us, and this is something I try to emphasize whenever I teach on hermeneutics, that our Bible is complete in everything that it says. It's not lacking anything. But it is also not everything that was ever written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through all time. It is not possible for us to say we have all of the inspired works. It's simply not possible because we know that the Bible that we have is the fourth version. Books have been removed. Books have been put, put back in. If someone says, of course, the Bible is the inspired word of God, I would never, agree, I would never disagree with that. But at the same time, which, if you want to say that this is the only stuff that could ever be part of God's inspired word to us, you, you have a problem. You have a big problem, and most people don't understand that, or they're afraid of it. Because some people believe when you say that there's no way we can say that the Bible is the entirety of all inspired works. There's no way we can say it. So people hear that, and they think, so I can read something else and call it the Word of God. No. No, you can't. The Word of God we have is complete in all of its form. It's not lacking anything. So this is not permission to call something else the word of God. It is simply a reminder that history sometimes claims things. So let me give you an example. There are two other books referenced in the Bible that are not part of the Bible. Book of Enoch and the ancient book of Jasher. Both of those books are, are, are referenced through scripture, but they're not part of the scripture. Why? Well, they didn't line up with the canon of scripture. They were unnecessary. A lot of stuff was just duplicates. So instead of having multiple books that say the same thing, why would you keep referencing them? But that does not mean that the history in them is not accurate. You see? So there's a lot that we have to understand about the word of God. But the, thing, the, thing, the most important thing to understand is it's not missing anything. God's hand was on scripture. It always has been. So the word of God that we have is inerrant and inspired and timeless and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training. We know that. But every now and then you run into something and you remember that history has claimed some of our writings. We know that. But we have everything we need 
And we can have full faith in that. Your Bible is not lacking anything. But now, unfortunately, even with all of this stuff, most of the Hebrew nation rejects the divinity of Christ completely. And I'm t- even modern people, some smart, smart people. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, how many of you here know who Ben Shapiro is. He's a political commentator. He's known for being slightly aggressive. If you ever hear someone say, uh, say something like, facts don't care about your feelings, that's a quote from Ben Shapiro. His political commentary is pretty, is pretty awesome. He's a very, very intelligent person. Now, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he was talking about his, his, his Jewish faith. And Joe said, well, what do you think about Jesus? And I was absolutely taken back by his answer because it was one of the most ignorant things I've ever heard him say. And I could not believe it. I was thinking, oh, you know, he's a Jew, so he'll have some, some, you know, some input here. But what he said, I was like, are you kidding me? He said, oh, I don't believe in Jesus at all. Jesus was just some guy who tried to, to raise a rebellion against Rome and got killed for his troubles. That is one of the most ignorant things about Christianity and Christ I've ever heard come out of an intelligent person. No one who reads anything about Jesus would ever believe he was trying to raise a rebellion against Rome. He didn't care. But it gives you a a glimpse into the Hebrew mindset, into the Jewish mindset, that they they have no connection to the Messiah whatsoever. That's why we support ministries like Jews for Jesus. They're, they're Jews that are ministering to the Jewish nation, trying to bring them into a messianic understanding. They do an amazing job. They, they, they bring traditional Jews, religious Jews, into Christianity all the time. And they do it through bringing them back to their own scriptures <laughs> and revealing Christ to them through the scriptures. So that's the first reason why the, these passages are in, uh, are, are in the beginning of Matthew, because they, they, they remind us that Jesus has always been there. We just got to look for him. Now, the second reason these prophecies are there are for those who will come later. For those who will come later and read this gospel. Remember, that gospel was written to that, during that time, so it would go out among the people, but he also knew that this gospel was going to be around for a little while. And for those who are past the time where he's alive, people need to know and they need to understand. If you're going to write something that is going to be able to teach people down the road, you have to write it in a complete form. You have to have all the information there. How many of you love getting a new product and you get your instruction book and it's written in a language you don't understand? Then your wife takes it, flips it over, and oh, English. Okay, good. But you have to have, it has to be written in a way where the details are there. And that's why we have this information. It's important. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patient, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Can I say that again? Through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's why these things were written down. It's like God is always telling us, write it down. Because he knows we're thick and we don't really remember a lot. But here's the thing. The New Testament was not written to replace the Old Testament. I can't tell you how many times I have this conversation. We, we call ourselves New Testament believers, but the New Testament is not the replacement for the Old Testament. 
It, one does not supersede the other. So when you think about this, in the unfolding of God's word to us, are the gospels the beginning of the New Testament or the end of the Old? Think about that for a second. Are they the start of the New Covenant or are they the end of the Old Covenant? The answer is both. They bridge the two together. They bind the Old Testament to the New Testament. You cannot have one without the other. So you have all of these promises of God, all these prophecies of the Messiah, and then and then what? Like at Malachi ends, there's a blank page, and then like suddenly Jesus shows up? Like they're two separate stories? No. The Gospels are the fulfillment of all the promises that God made in the embodiment and the life of Christ. God steps out, God literally sends his son, he steps out of eternity, and he walks out all of the promises and prophecies associated with the Messiah on our benefit. And then he releases us into the newness of our faith. And we think something changed. And I'm going to tell you, nothing changed. There's only one piece of our faith that changed. And it wasn't that it changed, it was fulfilled. And isn't it interesting that Jesus said, I did not come to change or remove the law, I came to fulfill it. I want to show you that. Now let me ask you something. If you were to take your Bible, and you, 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 you grab your Bible and you think, I'm a New Testament believer. So you're going to take your Bible and you're going to rip it in half. But here's, here's the thought. If you were to take your Bible and you open it up and you get to the end of John and you tear from Acts to Revelation, you tear that right out of your Bible. Other than the revelation given to John on Patmos, which is the book of Revelation, what have you lost in terms of knowledge and understanding? Nothing. You've lost Nothing. Everything that you read in the New Testament can be found in the Old Testament in one way, shape, or form. I guarantee it. The New Testament is almost entirely the application of the Old Testament. How do you live the truth of God out? How do you live the word of God out? How do you live the morality of God out? How do you live the standards of righteousness out? That's the New Testament. It's kind of like the cliff notes. Mm Mm-hmm. Apparently, I've been talking too long. Not uncommon. Nerd. <laughs> but that's what you get in the New Testament. You remember all of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches? He didn't just decide, you know what? I think I'm going to write the Corinthians. That's not what happened. All of the letters to the churches are response letters. They're letters written in response to a letter that he received from them asking questions. How do we do this? How do we do this? We got this guy who's doing, I don't, we don't know what to do. How do we do this? How do we do this? He's answering questions on how to live out the righteousness of God. And guess what his source was? The Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament. You know, he didn't have the Gospels. He had the Old Testament writings and he's giving them the application of the truth of God in a New Testament setting because of what Christ has done on the cross. cross. With the revelation of Christ, now we know fully what we only knew in part. When God knocked Paul off of his donkey, Paul's eyes were opened. It's interesting that he was blinded for a little while and then it says scales fell from his eyes. And he could see. And I think that's not only physical, but I think that's also metaphorical. Because in all of his knowledge before, he was blind to the truth of Christ. 
And through the, through the miracle of Christ indwelling in him, his eyes were open, and now he understood fully what he only understood in part, which is, I think, what made him the powerful witness that he was. He began to preach and teach the fullness of God. Now, let's do the same thing, but backwards. Let's go to the beginning of Matthew, and you're going to take the entire Old Testament, you're going to rip it out, throw it away, and because we're New Testament believers. What have you lost? Everything. You've lost everything. Because now you don't have 2,500 years of history and scripture and interaction with God and prophecies. You have none of that. All you have is this guy named Jesus who comes on the scene and says, I'm the son of God, but you have no idea why. Why should we believe him? Why, what did he come to teach? What, what did he, he what? Uh, I was born of a virgin. Sure you were. Yeah, no problem. But I was born in Bethlehem. Who cares? No one likes Bethlehem. So without, without the Old Testament, it doesn't matter. Without the Old Testament, the teaching of Jesus is nothing more than a moral code. Without the authority of the Old Testament, the history, the prophecy, the time frame of the people of Israel, when you, if, you, if, you're, if you're honest about this, if you take the Old Testament out, Jesus looks a lot like a cult leader. Follow me. Drink my blood. No. He's just a good man with a moral code. We don't even know why he died. People say, we don't need Genesis. Sure, tell me why Jesus died without Genesis. Tell me what sin is without Genesis. Tell me what righteousness is without Genesis. When we hear things in the New Testament like, as in the days of Noah, that's Genesis. Set my people free. That's Genesis. You know, Moses teaches us, eh, that's Genesis. It all starts there, folks. Without the Old Testament, we have nothing. No standard by which to judge the New Testament writings. And with Paul writing instructions back to his churches, he really looks like a cult leader. It is the Old Testament that gives the authority to Scripture. It is the prophecies that give the authority to Christ. Over 300 prophecies of the Messiah, all fulfilled in the, uh, in the, uh, in the life of Christ. Given hundreds and thousands of years before they actually happen. All fulfilled by one man. That's authority. That's power. That's reliability. But I think that's why so many people are trying to disconnect Christianity from the Old Testament. You have people like uh, uh, Andy Stanley, who actually preaches messages that we need to disconnect our faith from the Old Testament scriptures because they no longer apply to us. He actually said from the stage at one point in time, thou shalt not follow the Ten Commandments because they're not about you. <laughs> Wait, what? So I'm allowed to murder and steal and have adultery now? Yes! Life is so much easier now that I can just steal because the Ten Commandments don't apply to me. 
People, if I don't like someone, I just take them out. Life just got simple. I don't even have to respect my parents anymore. Because the Ten Commandments aren't about me. Oh, and I can have idols and other gods. Isn't this awesome? I can worship my car. No one would ever worship my car. I pray to it every now and then. <laughs> Lord, please make this thing do what it's supposed to do. Now, when we got married, me and Samantha used to pray over our car a lot. My 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 old minivan. Yeah. It had 375,000 miles on it before the odometer stopped working. And the guy that I bought it off of, it was actually a, it was a Dodge Caravan. It was a five-speed on the floor. That tells you how old that was. <laughs> okay. I really loved that van. I could start it in Watertown, and she knew I was coming to get her in Dexter. <laughs> yeah. Didn't need a radio because it didn't matter. Everything looked like death metal. It sounded like death metal. Ah! <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty sad. Uh, anyway, what was I talking about? Yeah, anyway. But I think this is why so many people are trying to disconnect Christianity from the Old Testament. Because when you disconnect Christianity from the Old Testament, then the New Testament loses its authority. It becomes good teaching, but not timeless, inerrant, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. It's a lot easier to make adjustments and subtle changes to something when you take away its authority. It's a lot easier to sanctify any and everything that the world has to offer when you're no longer looking at the historic word of God through centuries of tried and true reliability. All of a sudden, everything becomes acceptable because we lose the authority of the word of God. Whenever we can connect the New Testament to the Old Testament, we do ourselves an incredible favor. When the Bible references itself as its own authority, and we know where those references are, we learn something very powerful, that God has always known, and his word is always supposed to be our guide. So let me ask you a question. How many times do you think the Bible references itself? as its own source of authority. How many times do you think the Bible cross-references itself? Toss out a number, anyone. Hundreds? Thousands? 63,779 times the Bible cross-references itself. This is actually a program. This isn't just a, a pretty little image. Oh, look at the rainbow. This is actually a program that was devised by a guy who wanted to answer this question for himself. Now, all those lines you see across the bottom, the ones that go down, those are chapters in the Bible. That middle one right there is Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible. Now, if you actually have the program, which if you wanted it, you could buy it on Etsy. Um, you can zoom in if your computer's strong enough. If not, your computer, it'll make your computer crash because it does a lot of, it will, just a lot of information. You can zoom in and it will show you the beginning and end point of every one of those connections, 63,779 connections. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So when Matthew opens up with things like genealogies and then connects the birth of Christ to five prophecies, he's doing us a favor. He's reminding us of the authority of Scripture.
not one or two cherry-picked verses that just sound good. I'm talking about the complete, bound Word of God. What an amazing thing that we carry with us on our phones, in our pockets sometimes. It is the timeless Word of God. But yet, for a lot of us, it's a really pretty gold-bound coaster. It should be more than that. It should mean more than that to us. Now, the second point, and I won't spend a lot of time on this, I promise. I do have a timer in front of me. The second one was that there is always a price to be paid when God is at work. This is a very difficult reality for us to come to uh, when we're talking about the free gift of salvation that is the most expensive thing you will ever accept. It is the free gift of salvation, and it will cost you absolutely everything because it has to. That might sound like a, a contradiction, but it's not. If you think about this, if salvation were even remotely possible to obtain on our own, even remotely possible to obtain on our own, then the cross was nothing more than a publicity stunt. If we could do it on our own, then Jesus died for, for what? The fact is that we, we can't, and that's why Christ had to come. The central point of the gospel is that it is not something that we could have ever accomplished on our own, and it is not something that we could ever earn. You will never, ever in your life earn the salvation that has been granted to you freely. Ever. There is no level of goodness you can achieve where God's like, wow, didn't even have to send Jesus for him. That guy's amazing. Not going to happen. This is why it has to be a free gift, but that free gift comes with a price. That price is that you cannot simply live a cursed and sinful life and then claim the gift of salvation and the forgiveness of sin and then go back to that cursed, sinful life. You can't. It's not possible to maintain those two things. This would be like me being in a gym doing bench presses while someone is feeding me a Twinkie. Now, to me, that's a gym I would join. (laughs) But at the same time, what am I doing? I'm lying to myself on one hand while hoping in something on the other. You cannot have evil and goodness in the same place. One always wins. The door to the gift is repentance. The doorway to salvation is repentance. This is one of these messages that a lot of people don't like to talk about. Love the motivational sermons, but the door to everything good in our faith is repentance. And repentance is when we literally come to a place where we change the way we think. That's what repent really mean, literally means. It means the, ch- the changing of one's mind. But it is not just simply changing your mind to adapt to what everybody else wants. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is to willfully and completely dump all of your ways of thinking, everything you think you understand about the world, about about morality, about sexuality, about marriage, about family, about home, about money, about, about work, about all of it. You dump all of your understanding as no longer valid in the face of what you now know, and you agree to learn and live according to this. That is what repentance is. So 
This has been said by a lot of people from a lot of pulpits. I'll say it uh, here. I know I've said it a few times. If you do not love the word of God, you do not love God. And repentance has not happened in you. If this is an unfair obligation, then you really need to stop and ask yourself if you know the one who wrote it. Because you cannot repent. You cannot receive the salvation of God without learning how to change your mind. How to move in the path that God has for you. This is and will always be our one and only authority on everything that it talks about. When people say, you know, I know what the Bible says, but stop right there. I don't care about your butt. Your butt may be really big. Or your butt may be really small. It doesn't make any difference. There's only one thing you get from a butt. It's a bunch of crap. So leave your butt at the door. <laughs> You're like, did he really just say that? Yes. Sorry, sometimes I was, I'm hearing this for the first time too. So we get... If the word of God says it, then that is the word of God, period. End of story. And when we stand before God in judgment, we are going to be judged against one thing and one thing only. And that's his word. So when we stare at God and we say, God, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I just, I just, I, I don't remember ever hearing that. He goes, but you had like nine copies of my book in your house. Out of your 40, 50, 60 years as, as, as someone who called himself a Christian, did you not read the whole thing? Didn't, did I not give you enough time? Do you know that it's possible to read the Bible in 90 days and not even have to work hard? But most of us don't read it in a year. Now, you already know that I'm throwing myself into that because when my wife said she read through the entire book in the year, Bible in a year, I was like, oh, I don't remember the last time I did that. I felt kind of bad about that. Still do. <laughs> but not knowing the word of God when it's so readily available to us is, is not going to be a valid excuse because his word is his word. It's not, it's not the suggestions of God. It's not the hopefulness of God. It is the word of God. It is timeless, it is inerrant, and it is inspired. And it contains everything we need to know about every area of life that we ever need to be concerned with. We just have to read it and learn it. Learning and living according to the teachings of Scripture is the most costly thing you will ever do in your life. That's where the cost of God moving is. Because you're going to find relationships you can't hang on to. You're going to find friendships that you need to let go. You're going to find people you need to steer away from because they're bad for you. You're going to find jobs you can't stay in. You know? Some of the hardest people to lead to the Lord are bartenders. Because they'll accept God and then they realize, oh no, I can't keep doing this. No, no, you can't. doesn't matter how good the money is. 
Walking the path laid out for you by the Holy Spirit is the most costly thing we will ever do as believers. The wise men were prompted to follow the star to the Messiah. It was an amazing honor for them. But what was the cost? They, paid, they had to pay for that trip out of pocket. That was a serious cost. And the gifts that they left at the feet of the Messiah were worth, most people agree, millions. Most people don't realize how expensive pure frankincense really is. Oh, and there was gold in there too. And myrrh, ha, 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 yeah. Joseph had to pull up stakes and take Mary and Jesus to Egypt and back. There's a cost associated with that. There's a relational cost, there's a physical cost, there's a financial cost. Oh, and did I mention they walked? You know, just to make it a little worse, in the snow, uphill both ways? Okay, there probably wasn't any snow, but you get the idea. That's the equivalent of like walking from here to Florida. It takes about a month. He did it twice, just because God said, you should probably move. You think about this, the, the disciples gave up their careers, their family, their comfort, and their, uh, all for their calling, which would eventually cost them their lives. And the mothers and, mothers and fathers of Bethlehem had to endure a cost that no parent should ever have to pay. And they didn't even know what was happening. There's always a cost when God moves. And the cost is that the world will fight against the goodness of God every step of the way. Every step of the way. But that does not mean God's not going to move. Over and over again throughout Scripture, we see that God moves and there's a cost in one way, shape, or form. And yet, how often do we say things like this? I don't want to help out in kids' church because by the end of the week, I need some me time. I need some me time. Or how about this? I don't have time for a home group. I don't have time for ladies' group. I don't have time for the worship team. I don't have time for, to fill in the blank with every excuse that we use to avoid giving God the time and opportunity to work in our lives so that we have an excuse to remain discontented Christians and feel good about it. Here's something. We, we live in, a, in an... Agri- I'm going I'm to say this, and I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going I'm I'm to get off the stage because it's probably going to make some people upset. We live in an agricultural community that does not stop, right? Do your cows have shutoffs? You're like, at one day of the week, you just hit a button, they don't produce milk that day? No, they don't. But let me, let, me, let me tell you something. There is one commandment of God that actually comes with a curse. That God will judge you if you do not keep this commandment. Anyone want to take a guess what it is? Honor the Sabbath day. How many of you work seven days a week and you do not find a way to take a day off? Not half a day, not part of a day, not breakfast, not dinner, not lunch, the whole day. Why would we do that? We do it because God said, do it. There is a way. People have been farming for centuries. The Israelites were farming for centuries. They figured it out. There's a way to do this. You want God to honor your work? And you honor God in your work. Part of that honor is he said, take a day off.
All right, I'm done. That probably came out a little harsher than it needs to, but you understand. It's a commandment. Honor the Sabbath. When we let go of little things, we'll let go of big things. The details matter, folks. Let's come back to a tighter relationship. That begins with understanding the authority of Scripture and then being willing to pay the cost to live it out in our lives. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for what you're continually doing in our, in our lives and our time here. Father, we ask that you would be speaking to us about how we are supposed to move forward. What is it that we are supposed to be doing on a day-to-day basis to serve you? Show us the path. Show us the cost and give us the strength to pay it. Whatever that cost looks like, Lord, whether it be our time, our effort, give us the will to give you everything that you've asked for because you've given us everything we could never even hope for. We thank you for this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Some snacks in the back. Stick around. Fellowship. If you need prayer for anything, please come on up. There's a a group here that will be happy to pray for you. We'll see you next week. Lord bless you.